What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, and I'm coming back at you once again with a brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Welcome to the show, ladies and gents. As always, if you did miss last week's show, you can still catch that on demand. Just head over to lordsofpain.net's blog talk radio page or lordsofpain.net itself. And you'll be able to go root those out because, as far as I'm aware, they sit there forever and ever and ever. So do please go and check those out if you haven't already. And in the meantime, thanks for tuning in this week. Now, this week, it's a special extra-long edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead, so I don't want to take too long up front here to get through some of the admin, but I do have a couple of things to very quickly run through. Just a reminder that the first show of the new year, I'm going to be doing a special two-hour edition of sports entertainment is dead when i go through my choices for matches of the year in various categories and one of the categories that i'm going to be doing is of course tag team match of the year which in order to qualify simply has to be a tag team match two on two three on three four on four any variant uh, such as that tornado tag doesn't matter as long as it's a tag team match or tag team variant that has happened on any kind of wwe programming it is, as far as I'm concerned, eligible to be Tag Team Match of the Year. I'd love to hear your suggestions that feature Seth. I'd love to hear your suggestions that don't feature Seth Rollins, who is, of course, my boy. Uh, and uh, you can shoot them my way on any of the various social media platforms I'm part of or any of the means that I'll, as always, plug at the end of the show as is tradition here on Sports Entertainment is Dead, so don't forget that. Also, bit of an embarrassing notice to make here guys i've been advertising that as a christmas day and new year's day special um that and my my special two-hour edition with the doc that i thought was coming up on christmas day turns out christmas day new year's day they're actually on a tuesday this year not a wednesday so it's going to be december 26th and january 2nd that those back-to-back two-hour specials come your way but it's still going to be the great stuff december 26th me and doc talking about our pro wrestling philosophies for two hours and of course on january 2nd me going through my matches of the year so hit me up with your suggestions for the last folks i'd love to hear from you as for this week we've got a couple of things to get through that's why it's going to be around probably around 90 minutes i'm looking at maybe a little bit over but anything we don't get through i'm going to be picking up hopefully on friday on the right side of the pond so you can tune into that show then but as for this week we've got the tlc alternative pre-show that I'll be doing in just a little while but before we get to the TLC alternative pre-show in just a little bit we have a little bit of unfinished business to take care of first of all which is of course to complete our trek down memory lane and what has now become a three-part look at the evolving relationship between Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose those of you who've been listening to Sports Entertainment is Dead will know that we covered FCW through their Shield days in part one a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we covered everything from the post-Shield split up to, up to and including 2016. And of course, this week, we're going to round off as to where we're up to now heading into TLC on Sunday. And to help me finish that off is, of course, my co-conspirator and the guy I drafted in to help me do it in the first place from the right side of the pond. It's Maverick. How are you doing, mate? Oh, very well. Good to be here again. It's a pleasure to have you. So we finished last week touching very briefly on Survivor Series 2016, which is, of course, when we had that big interbrand Survivor Series match, traditional five-on-five men's Survivor Series match, one of my favorite matches of recent years, actually, 50-odd minute epic. And in the midst of that, there's this moment where Dean Ambrose, who, of course, was uh, sort of eliminated earlier on in the match as a result of... AJ Styles kind of uh, basically uh, sort of not being able to put their issues aside, 
comes back down to the ring uh, and attacks AJ. And then he sort of starts to get carted off by security. And there's this wonderful mo- moment where you see Seth and Roman, who remain on the Raw side, sort of see this army of security guys manhandling Dean. And there's this sort of look of sort of indignance on their faces and like, no, nah, we can't have that. And so they, they then proceed to attack and clear out all of the security guards and put AJ Styles through a table as the shield in uh, an incredibly emotive moment. Still to this day, uh, kind of chokes me up a little bit watching it. It's just goosebump, chill-inducing. Um, and one of the wonderful things that I love so much about it is when you watch it back, Dean never really makes eye contact with Seth through that whole sort of uh, stretch of the match, uh, even though there's this sense of you can sort of see Seth going in for uh, like a chest bump or something at one point, Roman kind of is in between them. I have no doubt that that was just sort of coincidence at the time, but it, it feeds into the the narrative, obviously, that's, that's uh, sort of evolved between them over the years. Um, and I guess that, that ultimately kind of started the process of patching things up between them. I, I think what's what's fascinating is... And it's become my favourite thing between them, actually, is is the small moments, the really small moments. So the first one, of course, um, that we discussed uh, last time out was the uh, the fatal four way where it's the shield plus Randy Orton. Um, and they obviously had this this idea of putting Orton through the table so that it could just come down to the three of them. Um, which is very in keeping with the Shield's like original heel methodology back in the day, which I thought was fascinating. But then, of course, there's this there's that great moment where Seth comically asks the fist bump, and Roman and Dean look at each other and pummel him. Um, and, and and then this time it's the same idea, but with a very different tone and tenor. Um, and I think it comes across as much more tragic because of of, of what's been lost over the intervening years and um and i think that like the look between roman and uh, and seth is 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 fantastic in itself um and then the sort of pent-up frustration that ambrose lets off after aj's gone through the table um uh, it is fantastic and it and it if you if you watch that triple power bomb back and you watch back the original one of ryback ambrose is um reaction afterwards is almost identical oh really um and there's this i think there's this great symbolism um to that uh, so it's almost as if i felt like it 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 was kind of like drawing a, a bit of a line under mm. their original solo careers um like roman included um because of course you know uh after that you'd kind of um yeah you'd kind of get them sort of diverging again um as sort of uh you know roman was was obviously pursuing the undertaker and um um you know sort at, a, of, at, a, at a slow pace <laughs> yeah quite <laughs> seth had to finish his business with triple h and uh, uh, and of course like dean was over on smackdown separate from but i thought as soon as dean went across to to raw I just had a feeling that they must have something in store for him because at the beginning of it all, of course, it, you know, he, he had that brilliant match against the Miz. Um, and so there was this great idea of symmetry where Ambrose had, had um, unfinished business with the Miz moving across from, from SmackDown to Raw. And they had a brilliant series of matches, including, I think, what was, you know, maybe my, my match of, of, of that year in the, um, 
the Ambrose mismatch. I don't remember the pay per view, but it was terrific. Was it, was it the one where was it Extreme um, Rules? Extreme Rules. Yeah, where Ambrose weird... got DQ'd, he, he lost the title. I think, yeah, or like that. which I think is probably the height of, of Dean Ambrose's Bret Hart tribute. I think. Um, <laughs> and you know, sort of moving from that, of course, they get booked into this. Uh, they get booked into this sort of tag match together where uh, where Dean and Seth are in a tag match together and it, all the old chemistry comes flooding back. And that's emotional to watch in itself, that even after their years of bitter enmity, they can like, wrestle like a well-oiled machine. And, and I think that's when the genius comes in, really, because, of course, Seth is all hyped up, thinks he's the man of redemption after getting rid of Triple H and Dean's not interested. Well, going to... Um pull the brakes on just a very very little bit here um one of the things that i wrote in my notes as i was sort of prepping for the show was uh, just to briefly mention survivor series 2016 again excuse me <clears throat> uh, at the time it felt like it was more than just sort of a like you said that the tone of it was different to previous instances and it felt like it was more meaningful this time around something more than just a reunion uh, I think obviously we know that when they came to sort of reunite in the summer of 2017, Dean still had a certain degree of reticence and it played out over a long period of several weeks before they actually did the fist bump. I think it was on the go home before SummerSlam. It, it was, yeah, finally. Yeah. Um, so they, they really kind of have, have dragged that out. Sounds like uh, it has a negative connotation, but, you know, they, they, they really milked it for, for all they could and did very well doing so. Um <clears throat> If you cast your mind back, though, to where they were sort of, uh, you know, 2000 and, and sort of 15, even 2016, these are two guys who could barely stand to share the same space with one another. Uh, and I think a lot of people forget that there was a very brief uh, sort of run in between them earlier in 2017 when I think it was like there was like a triple threat match to determine who was going to challenge Dean for the Intercontinental Championship. It might have been even before heading into Extreme Rules. Um, when Seth and Finn ended up in the five-way number one contenders match instead. And there was that week where Dean was going around interviewing. I think it was Miz, Finn and Seth who were in the match. And it's the week where he told Seth, to, uh, told Finn to eat a carb. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they do this back, they do this backstage interview uh, between Seth and Dean. There's a, there's a really cool moment where they're talking about each other in the third person. And, and uh, you know, Dean talks about, uh, you know, looking forward to, to uh, sort of, you know, beating Seth around the ring a bit more. And Seth's like, well, maybe I've, maybe you'll be surprised. I've learned a few new tricks. And there's this wonderful moment where Dean's like, nah, you surprised me once. It's never happening again. Um, but the, the, the key takeaway from that for me was that, you know, I could, I couldn't have envisioned, even if Seth had turned babyface at the time in 2016, Dean being able to be in the same room as him doing a, doing a mock interview with him without wanting to give in to beating the living hell out of him still. Um, and in in one of the I th it, I think it was so so you fast forward some weeks as you say you know Dean's in the middle of this feud with Miz they run their mouth about Seth as well there's that segment where the Miz Taraj beat Dean down Seth comes out to make the save backstage uh, after the fact Dean confronts Seth and you know and asks him you know what the hell's that all about. Uh, and Seth tries to tell him that, you know, he's not interested in, you know, he's not going to let Miz run his mouth about him either. And Dean thinks that there's more to it than that. And he tells Seth to stay out of his business. And Seth's initial reaction, oh, th there's also a stage as well, incidentally, where Dean says um, uh, exactly what you said uh, a few moments ago, Mav, uh, that he almost mocks Seth for being the, 
demand all about redemption at this point. And so it's like, well, I'm working on it, you know, which is just a, a lovely little, like you said, those little moments in these segments they have with each other, just flesh those characters out a bit more. Um, but the the point I'm trying to drive at is that it didn't, first of all, it feels like after Survivor Series 2016, the relationship, if it hadn't been mended, at least it had, it had, it had uh, dampened a little bit of that fire between them both that had been lingering for a few years. But also... It struck me that to start with, Seth didn't seem that interested in pushing for a reunion all that much to begin with. But then, of course, you fast forward a couple of weeks and there's that incredible segment with the steel chair where Seth invites Dean to hit him in the back um, with the steel chair. And there's a line in that segment where Seth tells Dean that he that, you know, because Dean's remembering all the bad things that Seth did to him and, and Seth points out, well, I also remember you cashing in your, your money in the bank contract to win the world title from me. And, and that suddenly in my mind made me think, well, maybe that's the end of, I mean, you speak about drawing a line under the first stint of their, their solo careers. And I think you're, you're right. But I also think that maybe Dean cashing in that money in the bank on Seth. And we spoke about it last week about the, the irony of it. Um, but maybe that was the completion of the revenge arc that started in 2014. <laughs> Yeah, quite possibly, and I, I, I think another interesting thing that you uh, you mentioned there is is that it became increasingly apparent that there was a slight pettiness mm. to Dean's refusal to to shake Seth's hand or to bump Seth's fist or to even acknowledge that Seth had changed, and I think. What, what became interesting is that some people were saying at the time I seem to remember on social media, there was a big thing about this because obviously, the, as you say, the, the story played out over a number of weeks. I mean, really, actually, it was the entire summer sun build. So you're probably you're talking, you know, really six weeks that this played out over. Yeah. And a lot of people were saying at the time, this is making Dean look like a heel. This is bad. Why are they doing this? They just need to reunite. Um and of course, what they didn't, what people that were, were saying that didn't understand is for this moment to have the required emotional resonance, it had to be that way. It had to be somebody, you know, and this is the same, um, you know, in films, um, you know, in literature, that if you want those moments to have the required emotional heft, then, you know, and I'm thinking particularly something like, with Seth in particular, you know, you think about um, Jamie Lannister's arcs in the um, Song of Ice and Fire books where, you know, Spoiler you, alert. it's uh, it, but it's it's an incredible, incredible kind of moment when you open the, the third book and and you have his point of view and it completely yeah. does a 360 on, on on what you think about the character. Yeah. And I think, you know, with Seth, it's this it's sort of thing like how much does a man have to go through to show you that he's changed? And that's why Dean's refusal to come out and save Seth after he'd done the same thing for Dean, I think earlier that evening, even. Um, I think that was because everyone was waiting, weren't they? We were all waiting for Ambrose's music to hit, the mistrage of beating Seth down and nothing happened. He, he wasn't there. Seth just got beaten up. And it was this kind of brilliant, um, brilliant case of... Uh, pulling you know pulling the rug out from under a live audience one of the best examples of that i think i've ever seen yeah and, and, yeah and so you just, so you just get this this sense where you you build the segment where seth brings out the steel chair and asks Ambrose to hit him 
Um, and I think that's probably where you were going to put up, pick up. <laughs> well, no, what I was going to say is I, I don't know if it was with the Miz or whether it was later with the bar, but I, I absolutely there's there's that one where Dean doesn't come out to help him, uh, and and afterwards. Seth confronts him backstage and says, because Dean has, <laughs> Seth walks backstage and he's like, well, well done. Now I look like a jerk after Seth's just had the crap beaten out of him. Uh, and Seth's like, well, you are a jerk because you didn't come out and help me. And I, and I think, I mean, I wonder, and I guess we'll get into that this bit a little bit later when we start talking about this year, but I wonder how much of, like you said, that pettiness of Dean not accepting that Seth has changed is because that Dean, Dean's just like a he's foundation of stone, you know. I mean, you get the impression that Dean just doesn't change, um, and the idea that, that and and I think almost speaking as a, as a from from the point of view of, of the Seth fan, uh, who has been so emotionally on a very resonant personal level as well attached to his redemption arc, um, you know, I I dare say at this point at least, and maybe even still now, Dean doesn't fully fathom the the personal hell that Seth had gone through uh, as a as a part of the architect even though he wasn't aware you know that that was what was happening at the time I think it's really come into contrast for him uh, since but I mean one of the things that I picked up on as I was watching through all sort of the video clips on YouTube and stuff of all this this reunion TV that they did in the summer uh, last year. Um, is I mean Dean's body language is 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 fascinating to watch. It's always fascinating to watch, but it particularly here. Um, I mean Seth as well. I, the the steel chair segment. There's this moment where where Dean chastigates Seth for having called him brother, and Seth immediately is like, I didn't mean it like that, but but you know Dean's on one, and he he sort of reprimands Seth for a couple of minutes straight. And Seth's head is hanging, man. It's I mean there's there's a real sense of shame about him uh, as Dean sort of recounts what happened. Um, and then, of course, the the apology comes from Seth, almost like a, a volcanic explosion. And when he says sorry, uh, and then later as well, after they have the three-on-one handicap with match with the Mr. Arch the next week, uh, Dean's smiling. You know, Dean, there's this, there's these the, ever every so often there are these little glimpses of a smile from Dean, and you don't know whether that's because of we mentioned the pettiness, whether that's because he's, you know, he feels like he's won because he's got an apology out of Seth or whether it's just because that's all he wanted. I mean, I, I think what's fascinating is, is, is that sense of inner conflict that we've talked about before, because if you remember when they win the first tag match, they hug. Yeah. And absolutely. And then that Rollins is quite surprised and taken aback by it. And and I think that's what starts in Seth's mind, this idea that no, this is too good. We have to, yeah. We we have to reunite with each other, um, and and I think that's why Rollins starts chasing it. And of course, when Rollins chases anything, it's a part of his character that he he doesn't stop. Stop it. Like yeah. he, you know, he's he's so driven by whatever his next idea or plan is. No pun intended. Um, yeah. And he he just keeps going after it. And so this is why his 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 extended um, almost wooing of Ambrose yeah. um, is. It is such a kind of compelling thing to watch play out. And meanwhile, Dean's just full of the turmoil. Like he wants to hit Seth with the chair, but it, you know, it's it's like he he knows that's not the right thing to do. Well, I mean, it's what what I and I only thought of it today when I was watching the clip back of that segment. Um, is it suddenly reminded me of 
and we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, the Survivor Series match with Bray Wyatt, where Bray invites him to hit him with the chair at the end of it, and, and Dean does so. And this time, you know, Seth invites him to hit, with, hit him with the chair, and he doesn't. I mean, obviously, it's two very different situations, but I guess it just shows that that, that brotherhood doesn't die off. Exactly. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you can see the conscious threads that, that, that run through both their characters. I mean, even... And I think it's constantly like a relationship of overlapping binaries. So, for example, um, Seth's personal hell out being injured um, was the beginning of, of his redemption, whereas Dean's is the beginning of uh, yeah. uh, of his corruption. And so you've always got these these brilliant contrast juxtapositions that are being drawn um, between the two characters. And I think that's the genius of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing that I picked up on as well, talking about the the conflict, was that um, so the the Miztourage beat them both down. They're backstage after the fact, again, sharing the same room, which you certainly wouldn't have imagined two two years or a year, even a year prior after the if they'd both been beat down. Then there's no way they're in the same locker room, sat next to each other, sort of licking their wounds. Um, but Kurt comes in, says they've got a tag match the next week with any two members that they want. Um, and says, "All right, cool." Uh, but but then Dean's sort of says look um give us all three we'll take all three of them on um and it's like it's that <laughs> there's a and, and i remember actually incidentally and i didn't mention it last week and i was kind of kicking myself after we finished that i didn't i remember when they were building to the or was it come to be when they were building to the triple threat because roman was was suspended i'm not sure when it was but but there was sometime in the in the past at some point along the road where seth was still a heel where him, Dean, and, and Reigns were all sharing the same ring again. It might have been sort of towards the end of 2015 and when they were building first to Seth and versus Roman or sometime around there. Uh, and Dean has this like boyish... Oh, it might have... I tell you when it might have been. It might have been when there, there was that week some years back where Shawn Michaels did a guest spot and they had Seth confront Shawn in the ring and stuff and did, did the whole, you know, next Shawn Michaels shtick. Um... And then Sean sort of provoked Seth into rejoining Dean and, and Roman to face the Wyatt family, I think it was, later that night in like a six-man. Um, and obviously Seth was a heel at the time, so he kind of walks out. But there's this, there's this wonderful moment where even at that point, Dean has this like childish, boyish sort of grin on his face, and he seems so giddy and excited that the Shield are back together. Um, and it just it was telling to me that it, it was almost like that same sense of... You know, we're talking about the conflict. There's that same part of him is getting the better of himself where he's like, he, he kind of wants it because he's the one who, who suggests them doing three on one. Seth was quite happy to do, you know, to pick any two, but he's, you know, co combined with his na with Ambrose's natural instincts to bite off more than he could chew, of course. Um, but I just found that quite interesting that he almost, he sort of eggs Rollins into doing it when he's the one who supposedly doesn't want the reunion. No, entirely, entirely. And I, I think... You know, looking at looking at that sort of attitude of we'll take them all on. You know, maybe that was what Ambrose brought to the Shield. It was that Quite, yeah. it was that Possibly, sort of yeah. you know that that mentality of it doesn't matter how many of them are, which is why that lumberjack um, that lumberjack promo that he cut when he talked about like we're going to be fighting through these this sea of bodies that we broke on our way on our way to the top. Um, you know, it's almost as if Dean wants that that sense of um, him against the world, even when 
he's in a, a partnership with Roman, yeah. um, you know, during 2015 or with Seth during 2017, you know, or, or during the Shields, both both sorts of Shield runs, you know, he, he just doesn't he doesn't care. He just wants he just wants to sort of fight his way through everybody. Totally, absolutely. So we get the we get the three on two handicap match against the Mistarage. The next week, Renee interviews Dean and asks him about um, rumors of him and Seth getting back together. And for the first time in all of this, I mean, you forget how much they packed into these six weeks, man. For the first time in this entire sort of span, Dean openly admits on the microphone. It sort of Seth comes in and joins. Um, you know, oh well. First of all, rewind because the preceding week when they have the match, there's a backstage segment earlier on in the night when Seth sort of openly admits he's kind of excited to be teaming up again. Dean's still very much, you've got to worry about three guys, I've got to worry about four. He's still not, he's still refusing to let go of of the past. Next week, let's talk about rumors of a reunion, and for the first time, and in front of Seth no less, Dean openly admits maybe there's a small part of me that that wants this. Um, and you, you, you know, you mentioned that maybe it was the fact that they were on the same page so well it kind of spurred Rollins into pursuing it. And I dare say that line probably spurred Rollins into pursuing it as well because he knows that now there's a there's a chance they're going to succeed. They win the match. Um, they won the match last week. Ambrose had, had uh, walked out on the fist bump. And like I said earlier, there's a moment where he stops and he kind of grins and smiles on the ramp. And at the time, I wasn't sure how to take it. And I'm still really not sure how to take it. Um, whether it's, whether it's uh, like I said earlier, a smug sense of victory or, or just the fact that, you know, he's he's enjoying being on the same side as Seth again, but he feels this, this kind of... I don't know this this obligation to still be outraged about something and this refusal to accept that Seth's changed. I mean, do you think that Dean is unable to accept the idea that people change? Because he doesn't, I suppose. Yeah. Um. Uh, well, certainly in his babyface run, you know, once I guess once uh, once Elimination Chamber um, 2014 was out of the way from that point you saw a, a huge consistency with his character um the sort of consistency that maybe only only Bret Hart or Stone Cold can sort of can, can match yeah. up to really um and and I guess part of that has you know part of that mentality and you saw that in do you remember that segment well not a segment rather the the WWE Network program they show when the Shield first split up, they had all three of them off doing their different training methods, and Dean was on his de- in the remember. desert by himself yeah. and stuff like that. And it I was think, in the build to SummerSlam. I think. Yes, it was. So Seth and Dean were facing each other, and Roman was about to to, to face Orton, I guess. Uh, and they yeah they did this kind of whole montage. It was called the self destruction of the Shield or something like that. Um, and it was. It was kind of fascinating because I think that very much set the tone for Dean's solo character, which was that he was gonna he was gonna do this by himself, um, no matter how difficult it was. And I think there's that sort of reluctance in him to let go of of that resolution that he made in the wake of Seth's betrayal. Like, okay, so from now on, that's it. Um, it's yeah. got to be me against the world. Yeah, I mean, he's very much the kind of guy that would cut off his nose to spite his face if he thought it was the right thing to do. Definitely. In, by his own moral code. And, and uh, you know, we, we've mentioned in the past two shows as well that he has this self-flagellating, sort of self-destructive aspect to himself. Um, 
But it's interesting that you've pointed that out because obviously after the Mysterage stuff, we transition into a feud with the Bar, which is of course where the, the SummerSlam match would would eventuate. And I think people forget, and and certainly at the time I felt like it got missed by 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 most, um, quite understandably because there's you know there's a lot going on in this storyline as as hopefully we're we're demonstrating by breaking it all apart. But um, loneliness was a was a a real prominent ish, uh, theme. Uh, throughout the whole bar feud at least the first half of it heading into SummerSlam I remember a segment where the bar taunts Seth for not having any friends uh, and then <clears throat> and this is why I say I, I couldn't remember whether it was during the transition into the bar feud that, that moment happened when Dean didn't come out to save Seth because um, in the the segment where Seth confronts him backstage Dean actively says to him welcome to being alone and then he says I've got Cesaro next and as always I'm go- I'll do it alone. Um, and so even though he's got Seth in front of him saying, look, let's, let's team up, it's that self-flagellation again coming in saying, I've got it, like, like you said, it might even date all the way back to 2014. From now on, it's me against the world. Uh, and, of course, he goes out and, uh, and wrestles Sarah. I can't remember whether Seth eventually comes to his rescue that week or not. I dare say he doesn't. There's a week when Seth doesn't and is almost like this is a show, okay, you know, I told you so um, yeah. sort of thing. And I think that's the thing, though. It is there. I, I think the genius of it is it's got these, you know, obviously got these moments of high tragedy, but it's also got these moments of of the, the I mean, the genuine pettiness of having a brother. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, my brother's two years younger than me. And like when we were kids, like we were extraordinarily petty towards each other. And, and I think that's the kind of. That's that's the genius of it is that you've got the tragedy, but you've also got moments of absolute realism in 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 these kind of moments where it just gets like fickle and petty, you know. And I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, but then there's another segment that's almost as good as the chair segment. It may even be better, which is of course the one where they eventually bump fists. And obviously people immediately remember that part of the segment, but they forget that before that, there's this whole sort of second confrontation between the two of them in the ring. Dean actively calls Seth out and says, look, you know, we need to just stop playing games. What's going on here? Let's have this out. Um, And there's so many of those small moments that we like so much in there, including specific lines uh, where from Seth in particular for me, um, you see, you you see, and and it's it's fascinating when you go back and you re- revisit all this 2017 stuff with Ambrose. How much it did to flesh out um, uh, Seth's uh, redemptive character. He'd been on that journey with Triple H, uh, and while I've found ways to sort of fit what happened between WrestleMania and SummerSlam into that overarching narrative, the truth is, you know, from a very sort of practical perspective, it was only the Ambrose stuff that really started to build on that. Um, and he talks, he, there's two moments in particular, one where he says maybe too much has happened, maybe this isn't going to work, maybe this was a bad idea, and very uncharacteristically turns around to leave and just give up on it. Uh, and there's another one where he talks about how there are days when he can't even, because Ambrose mentions he can't trust him, and there, he talks about how there are days that he can't even trust himself anymore. And then you, that's when you get this impression that as conflicted as Dean is, all the time, seemingly, but in these big emotional moments, that Seth is fighting a war on a daily basis to try and overcome those negative instincts he has to do, you know, to take the the quickest route to the top that he wants to get to. Oh, definitely. I, I think um, from the very first moment, 
that that we talked about that FCW promo of, of, of Seth when he came in. You know, it's 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 the ambition to be the absolute best. But of course, you know, um, if you look into uh, any walk of life, but particularly anything involving you know sort of physical competition, um, you know, how do you become the absolute best? You need this. I mean, the overwhelming quality that that you kind of see is just this relentless drive but sometimes that can be to the detriment of the people that 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 you work with you know like this kind of single-minded desire to succeed and so yeah i mean absolutely like there's a sense in 2016 and 17 of seth um holding back his demons and 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 i think part of his motivation for reuniting with ambrose is that he feels that that's a way to hold those off to hold those cravings away because this is somebody with a greater moral code that will hold seth to account that's very interesting because it it, i mean it might have been a couple of weeks ago now where you talked about seth not being able to help but use people around him uh, to get what he wants and and you know that when that's done self-consciously, it's malicious. Uh, but if it can be done unconsciously, then that's just who he is. And it's interesting that version of this essentially means that the reunion was a, a self-serving move for Seth. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's in a in a sense, I think everything Seth does is self-serving. But but in this sense, I felt there was a bit more of a noble um, okay. intention behind it, in in that he felt that he needed somebody to to hold him. To, to the, the moral purpose that that he was now attempting to pursue um so it's interesting that like if if you watch seth's move set develop um from you know from when triple h turned on him um to wrestlemania 34 you know you'll see this sort of gradual uh, ev- evolution towards um almost the sort of back to the, the sort of style that he was wrestling in FCW as if like, as his kind of, um, as his like moral character has improved, like, you know, his kind of, he's opened up his arsenal again. Like he doesn't feel like he needs to just be kind of taking these shortcuts anymore. And I think there's quite an interesting thing, tale to be told there too. I like the symbolism of that as well, because that, you know, he had that catchphrase when he came back, uh, redesign, rebuild, reclaim. And uh, I've always said that was as a, a brilliant a, a moniker for his story from Triple H's betrayal through to WrestleMania of him through to WrestleMania and beyond, of course, of him rebuilding, redesigning, rebuilding, reclaiming himself. And so I love that symbolism of his old self reasserting itself over him again, which is really cool. Um, and the idea of him using Dean as a crutch is a really uh, a touching notion as well and kind of just makes this year's events feel all the more uh, uh, poisonous and toxic a, a, a sting I guess um, they beat each other up of course it, it comes to blows um, Dean screams at him what's your problem uh, it's almost like he wants Seth to walk away from this I guess I don't know uh, and then of course we eventually get the the fist bump, and I don't know about you, but I remember watching that at the time, and and even now, when I watched it earlier this morning, it still gives me goosebumps. Um, and just even in that moment, and I remember tweeting about this at the time. I took a screen grab and tweeted it. You have Seth staring straight ahead, and Dean and Dean staring at Seth. And I thought, is there a better way to to 
visually demonstrate the difference between those two characters because if there is i haven't seen it it's interesting as well because um i I need to go back and check this to be sure but obviously roman used to be in the middle um okay so it's you know it's it's interesting because the, the the one thing we haven't i mean we've touched on it but i think the the balance of those two is always roman because roman like seth um you know is is very much like out to be somebody that that collects baubles um but but like dean he also seems to have um a fairly firm moral code as well so it's like almost as if like he's the balancing point of those two and him being missing from that screen grab it's kind of illustrates the imbalance because dean and seth are the yin and yang but it's kind of like it needs that third way for them to really function properly and the meta meta narrative of that is fascinating as well from a fictional standpoint because of course romans had the most success out of the three of them in terms of championships and and prominence and main events and stuff so it's a feeds into a wonderful idea that that <laughs> that because he's the balance he, he you know he's he's sort of gone the furthest and and seth and dean sort of end up holding themselves back uh talk strictly in fictional terms uh, as a result of their their character flaws which is a, a nice idea as well um i mean the other thing is <coughs> excuse me <coughs> the other thing is as well one of the things that i adored so much about the matches that they had with the bar particularly the SummerSlam one and then looking back, this was all—it was always kind of a, of a trademark of the Shield, but the frenetic way that the that the that Dean and, and Seth worked as a team somehow seemed a little bit more unpolished this time. I don't know whether it was just because of the tone of of the story leading into the match kind of recast their usual tag style or something, but it felt very much like you had the Bar, who were this this pristinely oiled war machine. Um, who were working beautifully in tandem with one another. And you had Dean and Seth, who seemed to be kind of able to to, to outmaneuver the bar, but it, it, it felt like they were, there was, I don't know, there was just something in, that felt tonally endearingly clumsy about their, their tag work in those matches, like they were still getting used to being brothers again. Like it felt like the in-ring relationship between them as a team had shifted a little bit. Um, not so much this year when they wrestled McIntyre and Tigler, but we'll get to that. Uh, but in 2007, and again, I think looking back, it was probably just the tone of the story that made it feel that way. But I, I, I conte- contextualized it last year as two brothers against a team. And I think it very much feels that way. We talk about the pettiness of brothers and stuff, and you do feel like they're, they're, they're sort of still adjusting to being on the same side again to a certain degree. But of course, the fascinating thing about the match with the bar was that the bar were uh, bitter enemies that, that through um, being forced to team together became um, best friends and a, and a slick team. So they, their, their journey was the opposite of Seth and Dean's. So at the, the point where Seth and Dean wrestled the bar, the bar at the height of their powers of cooperation and um, what's that phrase Gorilla Monsoon used to use? Continuity. Yes. <laughs> Tag team continuity. <laughs> yeah. Um, they were at the height of that, that kind of 
Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine Monsoon and Ventura calling a Dean and Seth match? I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You you realise what you've lost whenever you watch back one of those Golden Age of Tag Team matches. I mean, even if you think back at you think about all those undisputed era um, or or like American Alpha or DIY, you know, you look, all those great tag matches that NXT have had. If they'd have had a proper announced team, like goodness me. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, going back to that idea, I, I think. The narrative of the match was very obviously, will these two be able to coexist? Because, of course, yes, they've had their emotional reunion, but is that going to hold up under pressure? And so Seamus and Cesaro very much wrestled that match as if trying to prise open that fault line of, you know, oh, if we, I think it's, is it Dean that plays face in peril for most of that match? Um, you know, if, if, if we, uh, if we keep this guy isolated and, you know, is, is it going to hold up? Are they going to be able to do this without getting frustrated? I think I think it's it's more of I think it's more of an even share in the SummerSlam match. I think it's Dean who tends to play it more in the No Mercy match. Like he, he Dean gets an absolute yeah. pasting in that No Mercy that's, match. That's the one I'm thinking of then, yeah. Yeah. To the to the point where I remember watching it and thinking like it genuinely made me believe um that the did they win the No Mercy match? I think they did, didn't they? Yeah. Um, but it, but Dean took such a hammering in that match that I was, I remember, I can't remember what happens, but there was one moment towards the end, uh, and I think Dean even sort of rose up on his knees and asked for more and stuff after it happened. But he kicked out of, he kicked out of a move. It might have been that they nailed the tag finish that they didn't get to nail at SummerSlam, and it was like, okay, well that's, there's no way. He's, and Dean just kept hanging on and hanging on. And I think what that, what those two matches did collectively, but particularly that Mercy match, well they demonstrated. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to to what made them special in in the real world as a as a group in the Shield, um, but fictionally as well. The reason why they're they're such a, um, a a dangerous team and a dangerous combination, dangerous unit, is because you know Dean has this absolutely inhuman. Uh, pain threshold to the point where I I always say that I don't think his character understands what pain is. He just doesn't seem to get that he's not meant to be kicking out anymore. Um, and Seth has that willpower that we always talk about. And in combination, those two things are, are practically unstoppable, especially in a tag team scenario, um, because it's it's you're facing an immovable object, object and you're facing an unstoppable force, and they're backing one another up. Um, and the fact that those two are, are united by a bond of brotherhood that survived everything we've spoken about so far over the last two and a half shows now uh, is demonstrative of, I think, why they're such a remarkable uh, force. I want to talk very briefly about the 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 what was originally the three-on-five TLC handicap match they had. Um, not in any great detail, but just to say that Obviously, shortly thereafter was when Ambrose got injured um, and and missed almost a year of of TV. Uh, and heading into TLC, Roman Reigns went out. Um, he caught some virus that was going around at the time, so he couldn't wrestle. Kurt Angle was announced as his replacement, but for the majority of the match, Angle, for obvious real world reasons, it was kind of written out of the narrative. So for the most part, it was a two on five handicap match for the two of them, uh, and. Very briefly, when you think about the tag match they had with McIntyre and Ziggler, where they were like a well-oiled shield machine again, a well-oiled unit again, it just struck me that maybe that experience of having that two-on-five situation where they that and you watch that match back. I don't know if you've ever seen it more than once, if you've even seen it once, man. But you you go back it. and <laughs> you go you go back and watch it. Uh, and Ambrose and Rollins are almost acting in perfect symmetry almost the entire way through. I mean, it really is remarkable, even by their own standards. Um, 
how much of that was sort of um kind of you know you, we spoke about drawing a line under the first part of their uh their singles careers with that reunion in 2016 not quite the same as that but it was almost like a rebaptism of fire saying okay we're the shield again even though roman wasn't there it was like dean and ambrose that experience allowed them to get back to being what they once were again it was like the the peak of their like just like i said a rebaptism baptism of fire so that when dean came back the following year and they had tag matches it was it was genuinely like the old shield days so i think even though we're i'm kind of imposing it on things you could still easily get to a point where it feels like you've watched that reunion progress because in wrestling usually it's okay we're a tag team again next week you know they're a tag team again but it's been such a delight to see that reunion you know progress uh, in the same way that Seth's kind of redemption has progressed and Dean's downfall has progressed. Everything about Seth and Dean tends to be drawn out to a greater degree than everything else around them. Well, what, what I found particularly interesting, actually, was the segment where the Shield got back together. And that was something I, I, I definitely wanted to talk about today. because Oh, in, in 2017? Yeah, so when they, yes. they, they, got, a, they got a beat down um, from the heels and um, there's this great thing, they're in the locker room, together and they've had treatment and what have you and they just roman just starts nodding and they're just looking at each other and it's it's you know i always hated that silent promo with triple h the undertaker like <laughs> i was never down to stand it um it's just like two people playing charades in front of an audience but um but, but Which they, i think they did it with roman and undertaker as well didn't they yeah uh, but this was like this was this was like a proper silent promo because they they just the fury within all three of them and it was like almost this mental connection of we used to run this place how dare they think they can do that to us Mm. um and and then they came out and they just they whooped everybody um and it was very much like the episode of smackdown where the it was shield versus everybody for that episode of smackdown um and they did the same thing on this um this episode of raw and i think you know as you say even though roman couldn't wrestle the tlc match there was very much a sense before dean got injured that you know it was an older and wiser shield and you get that in the mcintyre and ziggler and Strowman matches as well it's it's a shield which um has learned a lot about itself um I guess you could compare it to some of the later incarnations of DX, you know, with, with Michael's Michael, when Michael's and triple H took on Cody Rhodes and, um, uh, and Ted DiBiase and stuff like that. Like, you know, they've been through the wars with each other against each other and they know, they know what it takes. And I felt there was this grizzled gritty Mm. quality to them um, this time around which is quite interesting because it, it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, maybe in three, four years, if they do a shield reunion again, like what character that takes on then, because, you know, it, you know, this time it, it felt like a kind of almost, um, I, I guess like, you know, the sort of, if, if you look at the way that sort of these, um, shared universe narratives develop with the, the the marvel and the dc and stuff you know as the, as the films go on you get a kind of grittier grizzled veteran quality to some of the characters mm. uh, and i feel like you kind of get that with um with seth dean and roman in this kind of most recent run yeah absolutely um i couldn't agree more and and particularly in 2018 as well um obviously the the shield reunion 17 
kind of happened and it never really managed to take quite the form that perhaps we might have wanted it to at the time. Um, but actually, before we get to the Shield reunion in 2018, we've still got 15 minutes here. I should very briefly mention the fact that uh, Seth brings... Um, oh God, it's so difficult to resist the yeah. issue part four, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to. Um, Seth uh, brings Dean back to um, to Raw to help him out against McIntyre and Ziggler because through the summer, Seth just hasn't been able to find a solution to this McIntyre situation. And he brings Ambrose back, introduces him to take. Uh, he uh, refers, I think, to Ambrose as a lunatic in, in a backstage uh, segment, which is when Ambrose really starts to take umbrage with the use of the term. And, you know, Ambrose, he's, he's shaped his head. He's a lot bigger. And and our friend Sir Sam, who I had on, on the second edition of Sports Entertainment Instead, who's also a big Ambrose fan, pointed this out to me, that since Ambrose turned back up in WWE uh, after his injury, he never cracked a smile. He never told a joke. He, you know, he wasn't pratting around. He wasn't the same Dean Ambrose. He was a pissed off, angry man. And for a long time, it was anybody's guess as to why he was so angry. Uh, and whether that's all wrapped up in the frustration of the fact that he didn't have the outlet that he needed in the ring to be able to express his, I guess, maybe contempt for the world he lived in. Uh, and then, um, and then sort of Rollins calling him a lunatic one too many times just kind of pushed him over the edge. Because the the thing is, it's it's difficult to accept that Ambrose would bite on something as easy and obvious as McIntyre and Strowman's attempts to drive a wedge between him and the other two members of the Shield, isn't it? Well, I I mean, I I responded to your um your Facebook um yeah. post questioning what what you thought the motivation was for Hilton, and you know, I I felt a little bit uncomfortable when Seth was preparing for the SummerSlam match and he unveiled Ambrose as his kind of master plan for how to counter McIntyre because McIntyre had cost him so many matches. It was a bit like, oh, well, this is real architect stuff going on here, isn't it? Like, you know, you you basically got your best pal who's just your brother who's just returned from injury um, who doesn't have a SummerSlam match of his own and you're expecting him to base, to basically be your diesel. Um, you know, that you're, you know, like, you know, as if you're 1994 Shawn Michaels and, you know, like, and, and you can have this, this sort of, uh, uh, beefed up bodyguard in your corner and the, and, you know, and you're, and he says, well, if you've got a, I can't, what was he, re- what was he referring to McIntyre as at the time? Scottish psychopath. Psychopath. And he, I've got a lunatic in mind. Now, of course, what I found interesting about all this was that Dean had always worn the term lunatic as a badge of honor. But I think the way I saw this was over his long period of recovery, he started to see it as the world um, mocking him. Like it started to be a term that ate away at him as as like almost as if people were um, discounting Mm. what he was and what he'd achieved and what he stood for. Um, And I think, you know, I do think that like McIntyre and uh, and Ziggler, it was like they saw a chink in the Shield's armor and they and they picked away at it and they picked away at it, um, and I think almost the way I saw it was that the emotional 
um, soup of seeing Roman Reigns um, go off to battle cancer, seeing, um, you know, having triumphed against the dogs of war, but but sort of, uh, and yet, like, it was almost as if the triumph had, had come at too great a cost. And, you know, then that's when I, I said to you on the, the first episode we did that, that's when the Jekyll and Hyde stuff started boiling within him. Like, did Seth really appreciate him or was this all just a way of propping up Seth's ego? And, you know, when he actually turned, he kept saying, watch your mouth, you watch your mouth. And, and then of course there's the bit I spoke about before where he picks Seth up and Seth's kind of going, it's okay. It's okay. Like we can Mm. still come back from this. And then he doubles down on it. Um, And even then he's kind of, he's, He's ranting away to himself. He pulls up the mats and he's, you know, you can see he's, he's seething with rage, he's boiling over, but he's also keeps shaking his head and looking up at the sky. And it was almost ultimate warrior like in its intensity. <laughs> um, you know, Ambrose asking the warrior gods why, <laughs> why you know, um, uh, Brilliant moment though that it, it was, and then he, of course, he symbolically goes through the crowd, which was, of course, where they used to enter through, which I thought was fascinating. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's been a, that's become a real kind of, uh, refrain for the way they built this TLC match, hasn't it? He, you know, burning the vest, walking out through the crowd. The second week when Rollins demanded an explanation, he sort of stood at the top of the crowd and, and Rollins accused him of mocking the shield. Um, and I, and I mean, what's so compelling about it all is that it really feels very, very difficult to pierce Ambrose's mentality, uh, which makes Rollins' task at TLC particularly daunting. You know, we've spoken over the last few shows, you in particular, Mav, about how Rollins has this ability to see 10, 12 moves ahead. If you can't even understand why someone has done what they've done, how the hell can you preempt what they're going to do next? And I think what's fascinating is that Dean always understood why Seth betrayed him, because Seth went out the next day and he told everybody... Yeah. You know, why why he betrayed him is because, you know, the shield comes to the end of it. He wants to be the best, not just one of the best, um, you know, and he his motives were way out in the open. So, you know, he wanted a statue built of him. You know, he, he wanted to be this, you know, it, Seth's motives are always incredibly obvious. His motives for, you know, for sort of getting the shield back together or for, for, for reunite with Dean, all those motives are out there in the open. You know, his motives are getting rid of Triple H for burning down Triple H's kingdom. Again, that's all on tape. You know, he said exactly why he wanted to do it. And, and Ambrose has refused to give Seth that catharsis, which is one of the best mind games that you could ever play on somebody. And I think what's particularly revealing is, is, is that, um, Ambrose is presenting himself in recent weeks as somebody that has complete contempt for the world. And of course, you know, the world as a sort of, you know, using the the audience as a microcosm for the world. And what I find most fascinating is that he's arrived back at his FCW character just as Seth has arrived back at his <laughs> FCW <laughs> high flying character. Oh um, God, it's poetry. And and that's that's what I find most interesting is that Ambrose is now playing the character everybody thought he would play when he was on the indies at least that's how i perceive well i mean just very briefly to be a metaphor one quick second here there's there's been some grumblings about you know it's a failed heel run and um 
let's not even entertain that nonsense. Well, no, quite. But the reason I mention it is, is, I mean, that there has been, you know, a couple of segments where that, you know, as Vince has been writing Roy, he had the 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 vaccinations in his arse, uh, and he had the gas mask on this week, um, and actually, what I find quite appealing about both of those is that, you know. <laughs> And I'm not I'm not sure that WWE are quite so deft as to do this on purpose, but again, um, you know, artistic achievement second to authorial intent. And I think what's brilliant is it's watching like Ambrose is is you've just said it. He has this very obvious contempt for the world around him, and I agree wholeheartedly. And it's almost like he's mocking everybody else's use of the term lunatic. Um, you know that he's that he's acting in this bizarre way on purpose almost as an insult to their insult is the way that I've been been watching it. And I can only imagine that that's aggravating Seth more and more because this, to Seth, this is like, you know, this is a majorly emotional uh, thing for him to be going through at a point in his life when he thought he had gotten out of and finally put behind him that personal hell he was living for two, three years. And now it's like it's threatening to all come back again in a, in a slightly different guise. And Ambrose just seems to be making a mockery out of it. I mean, I was going to go a step further even um, and say that he's parodying the height of the of the Dean Ambrose lunatic character's popularity. I mean, you think sure. about those segments yeah. where he, you know, destroyed destroyed Jericho's um, jacket or, you know, or when he was eating popcorn behind Seth before he attacked him or, you know, like... I mean, that whole thing, the hot dog cart. yeah, the hot dog cart, pouring a, you know, pour, you know, grabbing a, a Coke from an, uh, from a, a member of the audience and pouring it on Seth's head. Like, you know, when he was at the height of his, his initial popularity as a, as a hero, um, it was because he did these zany lunatic things. And what he's done as all good heels done is he's taken, he's taken that trope and he's saying, fuck you with it. <laughs> you know, like he's basically saying, you know, well, uh, you know that yo you liked this did you well maybe you don't like it so much anymore and i mean even and even like i think when you looked at, at the garb that he was wearing uh, on the most recent episode of raw um well like second, exactly i mean there's an obvious symbolism there isn't it was everybody was always always saw Ambrose as, as a Batman villain, because of course the reason why people always compare everybody to Batman villains is because, I mean, and I, I don't speak as an expert here by any means, but as I understand it, like Batman villains are considerably darker than the villains of yeah. most other um, superhero characters, you know, universes, you know, they are, uh, they, they, they're kind of gritty. They have real life motives. They have messed up pasts and, you know, and, and that's why they kind of match up against, the hero that has the same thing. And I think like, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that Seth Rollins and, and Dean Ambrose have a shared DNA. They've, they've come up through the same developmental organization. They have the same grounding on the independent circuit, uh, but they've arrived at very different places. And I think that's, that's what's fascinating. Arrived at very different places that mirror the places they started in 2011 in FC or 2012 in FCW. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is 
Beautiful, absolutely. And it's going to carry on this Sunday at TLC with their Intercontinental Championship match, which brings us to a very nice end on this three-part journey across the years, uh, looking at the relationship between Seth and Dean. Mav, I would like to thank you for joining me for the past three weeks and helping me do that. It's been an absolute riot. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Uh, And I can't wait to see what happens next. Hopefully Seth will kick Dean's arse. Uh, as he so justly deserves you know so, we'll probably talk about this on the ponds but for the sake of the narrative i think dean has to beat seth quite handily i think he has to i think you know he has to grind him into the dust give seth something to come back against i think at the rumble i think that has to be the narrative but yeah no absolutely i you know i think the the, the beat him handily i'm not sure but well beat him certainly uh and and not be afraid to boast about the fact he's beating him afterwards either um and like you say it it uh puts seth in a nice position then to uh be seeking to overcome a different kind of adversity heading into the rumble and wrestlemania uh and man if seth wins the rumble i'll be overjoyed my favorite wrestler winning my favorite match can't get much better than that but uh like you say we'll probably talk about that on the pond you can of course catch myself and maverick on the right side of the pond this coming friday when we will be delivering i'm sure our traditional pay-per-view pre-show mav thanks again for joining me i will look forward to our conversation this coming friday and to those of you listening i'm going to take us to an advert break and when we come back i will be doing your alternative tlc pre-show Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for sticking with me. Thanks again to Maverick for joining me for that three-part trek across the years as he and I have looked at the evolving relationship between Seth and Dean. But it's on with other business now. We've got about 30 minutes left on the clock here. I don't want to really go over 90 minutes, not least of all because I've got two two two-hour specials coming up, but also because you wonderful people have got busy lives and I don't want to keep you. So we're going to go for the next 30. Any matches that I don't cover on the TLC Alternative pre-show here don't worry, folks, because on Friday I should be on the right side of the pond. You can catch my thoughts on there, so do check that show out as well. But for those of you who may have missed when I did this for Survivor Series, the premise is very simple. I get a little bit fed up with WWE's own pay-per-view pre-shows, even though I always watch them, because I feel like the the explorations of the matches and, and of the stories are woefully inept. I find that they leave so much creativity on the table, so much character and narrative on the table. They only skim across the surface of the true meaning of a lot of what's going on. So the idea behind the alternative pre-show is to literally give you an alternative. And while it's only half an hour instead of an hour, nonetheless, we've got time here, hopefully, to cover the top three matches, and that's what I'm going to be doing. And I guess it makes sense, really, for us to start here with the two men that Mav and I have just left off talking about, which is, of course, Dean Ambrose versus Seth Rollins. We are on the verge of seeing a new chapter in this generation's most iconic rivalry at least i believe that's what this is and it's set against a, such a fitting backdrop of the intercontinental championship <clears throat> and that's really been an element of all of this that people have kind of overlooked i think people have kind of looked past at the heart of this situation is the intercontinental title and while it isn't necessarily the intercontinental title that we think has driven dean ambrose's betrayal and, and actions towards seth rollins and the fans over recent weeks though i think it's worth noting that we still really don't have any clue as to what has been driving those those actions um i think certainly that the the fact that the intercontinental championship provides the backdrop for this match is only going to heap more emotion onto what is already a volcanic fire ready to just turn into a raging inferno because 
when you think about the, the, the journey that that championship has been on over recent years, you're really talking about a rejuvenation. You're talking about a renaissance, the intercontinence. And I'll give you a, a second to groan at that pun there. And it and Seth has really, I think, marked the peak of that journey because this year we saw the Intercontinental Championship main event, its first pay-per-view in, in what, 20-some-odd years, 26 years, something like that. It last happened at Wembley in 1992 and it happened at Extreme Rules. And think what you will of the match at Extreme Rules. The fact is that that achievement kind of got passed over and it really shouldn't be because you are talking about a situation in which the Intercontinental title was put back in the main event of a, of a major WWE show in a way it hadn't been in 26 years except for the difference between this time and 26 years ago was, and I'm really hoping that maths is right by the way, the number of times I've said that, but the difference here was there was no hometown, hometown crowd, there was no 80,000 seat audience there was no big four special occasion there was no stadium this was not a special occasion the only reason that title ended up in that spot was because it had earned the right to be there by being the hottest title going in the company and that is in large part thanks to what Seth Rollins has been doing in 2018 Seth's the first guy to give credit to his predecessors but he's really taken it to the next stage you know the Miz obviously gets a lot of credit but what people don't seem to want to acknowledge is that that journey the Intercontinental title has been on for all the credit Seth's getting for all the credit Miz has got, it really started with Kevin Owens and Dean Ambrose. <clears throat> and Dean Ambrose is now going to have to sit on the sidelines. You know, the only reason ultimately Seth has that Intercontinental title again is because Dean helped him regain it at SummerSlam. And to add salt to the wound, Dean is having to stand by on the sidelines listening to Seth get all this praise heaped on him for being one of the all-time great IC champs. And really, he's Seth is taking advantage of, of a groundwork that was really laid by Dean Ambrose through a lot of hard work. And Dean has been a been a, a repeated go-to for that championship over the last few years. It gets no credit for it. No credit for it. And just like, you know, Dean is a former WWE World Heavyweight Champion, but people would soon talk about the heist of the century that Seth, when Seth cashed in, then they would Dean's poetic justice. So while I'm not necessarily of the belief that the, these are the reasons that have fueled Dean Ambrose's betrayal, I think they're certainly not going to be helping. And, and the fact that this championship sits as the backdrop to their match on Sunday, I think it adds a little bit more fuel to the fire, but it's also, there's a certain poetic, there's a certain poetry to it, quite honestly, that they're wrestling for this championship that that really epitomizes the difference between their two careers, I think probably as well their two outlooks. And make no mistake, I mean, obviously their match on Sunday, we should expect it to be a war. There is a lot of emotion uh, going on in this thing, not least of all because of the Roman Reigns situation currently, but also because of their history with one another and because of the powerful emotional reunion they had last year that I think Seth was really, you know, tying into his whole redemption. He's still on on the journey of redemption, trying to re-earn the favour of the world after having spat in its face for so long as a manipulated member of the authority and, and really being treated as Triple H's puppet, as Triple H's addict, quite honestly. And he's he's still rebuilding his soul that way, and he's almost there. So for Dean to have done this, really, I think, is, is, is enough to make Seth feel like he's taken 10 steps back on this journey, and that's not going to sit well with him. Uh, but, but, you know, it's going to be a war. It really wouldn't surprise me if it broke down into a, into an outright brawl, into an outright fist fight. Though, I think what's interesting is you're really going to get, in the same way that I see title as a backdrop that, that epitomizes the difference between their two ethos, I think at the same time, you're going to get a match that epitomizes that as well. Because, 
what you've got to consider about Dean Ambrose and the fact that he hasn't yet revealed his motivations, and I think this is a large reason why Seth has been getting so frustrated with it. It's not just a case of disrespect. I think there's, there may even be a mild sense of panic there for the champ because, you know, as Maverick and I have been talking over the last few weeks, Seth has this incredible talent, this unique talent to be able to see 10, 12, 15 steps ahead of his opponent, this tactical foresight, let's call it. Uh, and that really is what allows him to, to use that willpower he has, that indomitable willpower he has to gain the success he craves is this ability to think ahead the problem is how do you do that if you don't even know why the guy you're fighting did what he did last week or the week before that if you don't know why you've been where you've been you can't possibly begin to try and predict where you're going next so this opacity this this tactical opacity this cerebral emotional opacity that dean ambrose has has sort of uh, offered up to Seth by pulling the pulling the shutters down and not letting Seth in, not revealing to the world in, in very Iago-type fashion why he's done what he's been doing, um, and leaving us really to try and grasp at the straws that were offered to us through WWE Chronicle, which set the, the, the image of this incredibly conflicted individual. Um, by doing that, Dean has essentially walked into a major advantage over Seth on Sunday, which is that Seth is going to struggle to really bring that tactical foresight into play. He's going to struggle to be able to utilize that in his match against Dean. And where does that leave Seth? But this is where it gets fascinating. This last week on Raw, you saw Seth tap into something that he typically doesn't tap into. It was a more emotionally driven, instinctively driven Seth Rollins. And Dean Ambrose saw fit to comment on this. It got his attention in his interview with Charlie Caruso. And on, while on the one hand, it was fascinating to me that he seemed very, very upset at the fact that Seth wasn't all consumed with, with Dean Ambrose. And I think there's certainly a little kind of warped love still in play there. Uh, at the same time, he he seemed angry that this wasn't the typical architect. This wasn't the Seth Rollins he knew. This wasn't the Seth Rollins that, as Marvin and I discussed a couple of weeks ago, really helped turn, became the architect because of his experiences with Dean Ambrose. He was less predictable. And if Dean, and if Dean Ambrose has an advantage over Seth because he's blocked off that tactical foresight, then what Seth seems to have almost instinctively done in a testament again to his willpower to succeed, is decided, okay, well, if I can't predict what's going to happen in 10 moves time, I'm going to fly by the seat of my pants. I'm going to use my instincts and hope that that carries me through. Folks, this really is the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. And I know that in particularly WWE, that has a certain grandiose, even I iconic uh, intonation to it because of Andre and Hogan and, and obviously this is just an IC title match at TLC but is the IC title match of a generation this is feels like the culmination of a journey that championship has been on for the last two two years, two, three years it certainly feels like another major milestone in the journey that Dean and Seth have been on really for the last six or seven years uh, and it's 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 a this is a big deal Ladies and gentlemen, do not sleep on this match. Regardless of how you may come to think of the match after the fact, this is a big deal. These two men understand one another perhaps better than they understand themselves. And I, and I mean that genuinely quite sincerely. I think that they, they have an insight into one another's flaws, into one another's upsides better than they do their own. And there's a whole lot wrapped up in this. There's the Roman Reigns situation. There's the IC Championship. There's Dean uh, Dean's betrayal. There's the clashing philosophies. There's Seth's redemption. There is there is so much going on here. It's like a Rubik's cube, and and watching that Rubik's cube disintegrate, watching it come apart at the seams on Sunday, 
in in a in a very kind of sadistic manner it's going to be a joy to watch it's going to be very emotional to watch as to who wins honestly we're going to be talking about this a bit more on friday so i don't want to go into too much detail here because we'll save it for the right side of the pond but i don't see how seth can get past dean ambrose in this one i honestly don't and that frightens me to death because dean ambrose with the intercontinental championship uh, motivated bitterly to prove a point on the back end of a of a seth rollins career year that title has been such a key part of i mean that's a frightening thought isn't it but that is of course only one of the many matches that's going to be happening at tlc we would be remiss to look past the wwe championship match that is going to at least at the time of recording and this is being recorded on tuesday night and after the experience i had with survivor series please be aware that this disclaimer will now come that the card is subject to change which means these predictions aren't necessarily going to come to fruition but we'll just go with the seat of our pants hopefully wwe won't switch it up too much tonight on smackdown live and we'll presume that daniel bryan is indeed going to be defending his WWE Championship against the former champion AJ Styles on Sunday and this has very quickly become a personal feud and in an interesting way even provides a little bit of symmetry with the Intercontinental Championship situation because if there's one thing that Daniel Bryan has proved recently it's the same thing that Dean Ambrose has proven recently the two of them have had somewhat similar experiences they've been denied the outlet provided by professional wrestling for an extended period of time because of injury and during that time they have found themselves to be too poorly emotionally equipped to process the onslaught of of anxiety frustration anger sadness upset all those various things that come with you know a sustained downtime when your profession is to do something that you love quite as much as these two love professional wrestling. And so what you've found is, in the same way that that's kind of gotten the better of Dean, I think it's it's obviously also gotten the better very much of Daniel Bryan as well. In a column I wrote a few weeks ago looking at the downfall of WWE's heroes, I mentioned that there's a certain element, or it feels like there's a certain element of, of post-traumatic stress to this situation for Daniel. He doesn't know how to process these emotions because I'm sure when he came back from injury back around wrestlemania he had grand visions for how it was going to play out he had missed this so much that to him this was like heaven on earth and what we've had since then what he's found since then are a series of of lukewarm critical uh, critical receptions and, and a series of of frustrating encounters with the likes of big Cass and the miz hardly the kinds of competitors that daniel bryan has thrived against and all the while he's had to sit back and watch aj styles the guy who really ascended to the top at the same time Daniel Bryan was sat in retirement he's been getting the kind of 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 opportunities that in the past Daniel Bryan really thrived on Daniel Bryan hit his career peak with the kind of opportunities that AJ Styles has been enjoying in the time he's been retired. But more to the point, I think it probably eats Daniel Bryan a little bit alive that he's come back to a relatively lukewarm reception. Nothing like the frenzy that seized the WWE Universe in the build and the road to WrestleMania 30, of course. Uh, and, and instead, AJ Styles... I mean, don't forget, right, that when AJ Styles debuted in the company, it was January 2016. We didn't know it at the time, but we were just literally two or three weeks away from Daniel Bryan retiring. So it it almost happened 
at the same damn time. As Daniel Bryan hit the lowest point of his career, AJ Styles began the climb to the highest point of his own. And so I dare say that there's a little bit of jealousy in all of this as well. There's a little bit of envy that AJ Styles, as Daniel Bryan was denied what he loved most, AJ Styles came in right at the perfect time to take that away from Daniel. And I dare say that since Daniel's been back, AJ Styles, you know, he's kind of been continuing to do that on a weekly basis. They've been on the same brand. They've both been on SmackDown Live. I can't imagine that sits well with a Daniel Bryan who's still trying to process all the hefty emotions that come with the the last couple of years of frustration, but also that huge tsunami of relief that's going to have hit him when he knew he could wrestle again and do what he loves to do. But even that in itself is an interesting one, isn't it? Because Daniel Bryan's concussion issues means that he's had to limit his ring game somewhat, which means he can't perhaps fully embrace on an instinctual level what he wants to do so much. And AJ Styles still can. And arguably AJ Styles does it better and people like it more. All of these all of these little voices are going to be swimming around in Bryan's head to have turned him into the little monster that he's become, of course. And we saw it this, you know, just, just last week. Over recent weeks, Daniel Bryan has been talking about the fickle nature of the fan base and so really this is a real tragedy folks because Daniel Bryan has turned his back on the people who lifted him to the highest point of his life to the highest point of his career and sure Sure, in doing that, Daniel Bryan got the WWE Championship back. And sure, Daniel Bryan can sort of dress this all up and talk about how his dreams are fighting for him rather than him fighting for his dreams. And he can he could try and justify his actions. But his assault on AJ Styles a couple of weeks ago was absolutely malicious. The way he won the championship was downright ugly. Because, it, I mean, it wasn't even original. You know, this is not the Daniel Bryan who was able to beat John Cena clean 1-2-3 in the middle of the ring for the WWE Championship because he had this deep, offensive imagination in the ring. This is a Daniel Bryan who saw that low blows had worked against AJ Styles more time than you could shake a stick at. So not only did he cheat to win the championship, he did it in the laziest possible fashion. This is a Daniel Bryan, dare I say, who almost looks afraid to be back doing what he loves doing. He's wanted it for so long. I guess maybe there's an element here of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And, you know, forget wishing. Be careful what you ask for as well. Because on Sunday, I think Daniel Bryan is very much going to get what he's been asking for, which is an absolute whooping from AJ Styles. Now, it's interesting to me that the two matches on this card that are liable to get the most violent, being the Intercontinental Championship between Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins, and being the WWE Championship match against uh, between Daniel Bryan and AJ Styles, that those two matches have been denied the opportunity to be a TLC match, to be a tables match or a chairs match, at least as it currently stands at the time of recording. And I dare say that that's probably a good thing, because I dread to think what AJ is going to try and do to Daniel Bryan on Sunday if he was able to legally use a chair or a table or a and much like the Intercontinental Championship match, it really wouldn't shock me if we saw this one fall apart at the very seams. Because in a, it's been a rough year for AJ. I mean, this is this is the other interesting thing about this situation. You know, we're learning the measure of Daniel Bryan's character, but we're also going to learn the measure of AJ Styles' character on Sunday as well. Because he might have an opportunity to go the cheap route. He might have an opportunity to try and beat Daniel Bryan in the way that Daniel Bryan beat him. 
whether he does or not is going to show us his true nature because it's it's been a rough year for AJ as well. The the prolonged series with Shinsuke Nakamura was was little more than a form of personal torture, and then it just repeated itself with Samoa Joe. AJ has spent most of the year fending away opponents who have been desperately getting under his skin, preying upon his family, preying upon him in an in an ugly petty manner. That plays with your head, man. It plays with your soul. It plays with your emotions. And at the same time, AJ perhaps hasn't had quite the kind of critically acclaimed year that he had in 2017, certainly that he had in 2016, it's kind of cooled off a little bit for him. So it's interesting that he's now beginning to enter into a situation that maybe Daniel Bryan feels he's been in for the last few years, and whether that fuels Daniel Bryan, who of course, as Survivor Series claims to have gone through this self-flagellating experience against Brock Lesnar, having had all the old Bryan beaten out of him. You know, whether whether Brian seeks to take advantage of that and really kind of maybe even displace himself and AJ in the eyes of destiny or fate, if you believe in that kind of thing, I don't know. And, I, I you know, going on the look in Daniel Bryan's eyes recently, I can't help but wonder whether he does. There's certainly a fatalistic sense to the things that he's saying at the minute. Whatever happens, it's a very difficult situation to call because you don't know if Daniel Bryan's mindset is going to perhaps loosen up his ring game a little bit. You don't know if AJ Styles is going to utilize the experiences he's had with Shinsuke Nakamura and Samoa Joe over the last year to maybe try and maintain a bit more of a disciplined mindset that Daniel Bryan is going to have. It could go, of course, absolutely the opposite way. And Daniel Bryan could end up succeeding where Shinsuke Nakamura and Samoa Joe only just came up short because ultimately you've got to ask yourself this. How much can one man take? That is the story behind this match. That is the that is the very principle behind this encounter because what Daniel Bryan has shown is a man who's had to be asked to take a little bit too much. AJ Styles has taken a lot this year and on Sunday he's going to face the same question that has turned Daniel Bryan into a rampaging little gremlin of a monster that he's become. And you know, if AJ can't get his head in the game, if he can't find a way to beat Bryan, he might be in more danger in that ring against this Daniel Bryan than he's been in all the matches he's had with Shinsuke, Samojo, even Brock Lesnar. This is not a Daniel Bryan you want to be messing around with, and that's what makes this such a high-stakes encounter between the two of them. And speaking of high-stakes, of course, that brings us to the final of the top three matches, and to my mind, the match really that should be closing out the show on Sunday, but we'll see whether or not it does. It'll be the fourth fifth time this year that it, that the women have been denied an opportunity to close out a show. They should absolutely be closing out if it does fail to close out the show, in my mind. Which is, of course, the advertised SmackDown Women's Championship match between Becky Lynch, Charlotte Flair, and Asuka. Now, there are still rumours flying around that this match may change. So, by the time this show goes to air, the match may have changed. By the time it gets to Sunday, the match may have changed. And one wonders whether that will be for the better or for the worse. I've already spoken about how there's a a lot riding on the other two top matches. There's a lot riding on this match as well. In fact, there's a lot riding on all of TLC. I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago that eagle-eyed followers of mine will remember that argued that TLC is actually the beginning of the road to WrestleMania, not Royal Rumble, because this is a show with WrestleMania implications, and this match in particular, because lest we forget, both Ronda, uh, sorry, both Charlotte and Becky have ongoing issues with Ronda Rousey, and 
Ronda Rousey is going to be in the same place at the same time. They're all under one roof on Sunday. So it's very, very feasible that things could blow up, especially because Nia Jax is there too. And she is, of course, the so-called face breaker that put Becky Lynch on the shelf. And we don't even know for a certainty as of recording whether Becky Lynch is going to be fit enough to compete. These are some seriously combustible elements. And when you throw Asuka into the mix, the history she has with Charlotte, and the... Uh, the, the potential that has to blow up with Becky Lynch, even Ronda Rousey, and certainly the history Asker also has with Nia Jax. I mean, you're talking about five women who may be separated by brands, but they aren't separated by any geographical space on Sunday. This is, of course, the first ever women's TLC match, but that seems almost like a footnote considering the issues that are playing into this situation here. And that says something about this situation. You know, Charlotte and Becky have been at loggerheads now for the better part of half a year. And it looked, looked very, very quickly, very swiftly. It passed, but it looked... Like, heading into Survivor Series, maybe there'd been a, a bit of a reconciliation. Maybe there was a bit of brand loyalty in play. Maybe there was a whole enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. But they embraced, they hugged. Charlotte talked about fighting for Becky Lynch. But then the experience Charlotte had in the ring with Ronda Rousey seemed to flip a switch. The same switch that got flipped in Becky Lynch's head. And there's a little bit of poetic justice going on there. Becky Lynch flipped she snapped because she felt charlotte flair was continuing to steal her spotlight i wonder whether charlotte flair snapped because she felt ronda rousey was stealing hers charlotte is the alpha female of wwe she's used to being the queen she was born better first ever women's champion in 2016 when the title got rechristened last ever divas champion forefront of the women's revolution second generation flair you know arguably the greatest of all time she is not used to being outshone by anybody but she got to survive a series she was there supposedly fighting on behalf of this friend that she cherished so much but had turned against her and after months and months and months of being bested by becky lynch verbally and physically she finds herself in this situation with ronda rousey ronda rousey's been getting more press ronda rousey's who's been getting the opportunities that charlotte's been getting possibly at a swifter rate ronda rousey who we are told has improved faster than any woman who have, who's ever wrestled in wwe has improved ronda rousey who who's been getting the buy rates, been getting the, the headlines. This is an alpha female who was taking Charlotte's spotlight, and she reacted the exact same way Becky reacted. And what's fascinating about that situation is that now you have the man and you have the queen, and they are both of the same mindset. They are both of the same disposition emotionally. And then that you know they've I mean you you think about what they've done over the last six months the the hell they've gone through with each other they have beaten the snot out of each other just through the day I rewatched their match Hell in a Cell and let me tell you that is a physical match I mean they they try and tear one another's legs and arms off in that thing people forget because of the last woman standing match because that's a whole other story you know a brutal last woman standing match absolutely vicious these women have torn each other apart. Almost quite literally. I mean, Becky has been stood there with a blooded nose and a concussion, still fighting on. These are physical, and they are highly motivated women, and they are competing for a top spot in the company as we begin the road to WrestleMania, which is the biggest show of the year, and there are opportunities awash in front of them. You know, lest we forget that if any one of them loses this match on Sunday, they get the Royal Rumble opportunity. It's not written in stone, but you can easily believe that they're going to get into that Royal Rumble match, and if they they win that Royal Rumble match, they get Ronda Rousey. 
Alternatively, if Nia beats Ronda, maybe Ronda enters the Rumble, and she could pick whoever she wants. There's unfinished business with Charlotte. There's business that hasn't even begun with Becky. But folks, don't look past the Empress of Tomorrow in all of this. Yes, the main story here is between this growing conflict between Charlotte and Becky, who've both ended up in the same headspace, in part because of the influence of Ronda Rousey over on Monday Night Raw. But Asuka is someone who, interestingly enough, finds herself in a very similar situation at a very similar time, yet hasn't snapped. You know, Asuka came into 2018, one of the, if not the, hottest female acts in the company at the time, maybe even in the company's history. Years-long undefeated streak, never lost the NXT Championship, won the first-ever Women's Royal Rumble, should have arguably, I believe, closed out WrestleMania against Charlotte, and she got beat at WrestleMania. Not only did she get beat at WrestleMania, she tapped out at WrestleMania, the most humbling defeat you could possibly have. And we've seen in the past in her encounters with Ember Moon in NXT that Asuka doesn't like to lose. I mean, she went to that that sort of that Daniel Bryan, Shinsuke Nakamura, Samoa Joe well once or twice in that feud with Ember Moon because she felt that her title reign in her undefeated streak was under threat. So we've seen she doesn't adjust well to adversity in that sense. And that means that she might be a ticking time bomb. Because since WrestleMania, since that tap out, she's been beaten by Carmella. She's been hanging around with Naomi. She's really become a B rate, a B plus player in SmackDown Live's women's division when she started as an A plus, A plus plus even. And as Becky's gotten hotter and Charlotte's gotten hotter, they've become so obsessed with one another. You know, Becky's too busy worrying about Charlotte. Charlotte's too busy worrying about Becky for either one of them to really be worried about Asuka, especially with Ronda Rousey in the distance. And the truth is that if we've learned anything from the situation with Becky, if we've learned anything from the situation with Charlotte, then Asuka is a ticking time bomb because the the female division in WWE doesn't seem to be, uh, certainly on SmackDown Live right now, doesn't seem to be the one that enjoys having spotlights taken from individuals. Asuka hasn't snapped yet and the truth is she may be about to snap on Sunday and if she does, unlike with the situation with Becky, unlike with the situation with Charlotte, I mean you saw Becky's was violent, Charlotte's was even more violent with the Singapore cane, now on Sunday it's a TLC match, there's going to be tables, ladders and chairs lying everywhere and if Asuka snaps then Charlotte and Becky, as tough as you both are, as tough as nails as you've both proven to be Good luck, ladies, because I don't know how you survive an Empress of Tomorrow who is snapped, who is unhinged, who is driven, and who has at her disposal all of this extracurricular furniture to basically do as she sees fit. It very well may could be that on Sunday, because Charlotte is so obsessed with Becky and Rhonda, because Becky is so obsessed with Charlotte and Rhonda, that Asuka could be the one to walk away with that championship. Don't sleep on her, folks. Do I think she will? Well, tune in to the right side of the pond on Friday, like I said, for my actual predictions. Maverick and I are going to be breaking down the rest of the card, as well as the three matches that I've covered in this very brief passing alternative pre-show. Next month, I'm hoping that the Royal Rumble alternative pre-show I'll be able to dedicate a whole hour-long show to, especially because the Royal Rumble is my favourite event of the year. But this Sunday, TLC, the road to WrestleMania, begins in earnest, I believe, and we We've got some big matches with some high stakes on the line, including Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins for the Intercontinental Championship to culminate the journey that Mav and I have been on over the last three weeks and those two have been on over the seven years. So my thank you once again to my friend Maverick for joining me for that and my thank you to all of you good folks listening out there. I hope you've enjoyed this show as much as I have enjoyed recording it. 
I'll be back next week, of course, and I'll be back with the TLC Performance Art Review. That's one, And then one week after that, of course, it's December 26th, Chad the Doc Matthews will be joining me and we'll be breaking down our conflicting philosophies on professional wrestling and really opening that debate up in a two-hour special. So do join me for both of those shows. In the meantime, if you want to submit to me your contenders for Tag Team Match of the Year or any of the categories for Match of the Year that I've been discussing on this show over the last few weeks, or hell, if you want to get in touch, talk about Dean and Seth, want to get in touch, talk about TLC, want to get in touch, talk about anything related to wrestling or anything at all, there's a whole load of ways you can do that. You can reach me on Twitter at LOP Plan. You can reach me on Facebook, just look up Samuel Plan. You can drop me an email, samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. I had one just this last week. Someone has since joined up to the LOP Columns Forum, which I would encourage all of you to do, because you can also reach me there as well. Just drop me a message, sign up, get posting. Just let me know if you do sign up so that we can get your account cleared to post. You could drop me a message over there. You could drop me a comment on lordsofpain.net on the posts for these podcasts or on any of my columns. Just business gets posted once to twice every single week. So do check those columns out as well. And of course, you could check me out on the right side of the pond on Fridays too. So do please join me this week. Mav and I will be doing further TLC preview where I'll be able to go into a little bit more depth than I've been able to here on this extra 90 minute long special edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead. Thank you for joining me, folks. Go check out all the other great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio. And in the meantime, you guys have a good one. I'll see you next week. <laughs>